Americans love a hard worker. The employee who toils 18-hour days and eats meals on the run between appointments is usually viewed with a combination of respect and awe. But for many, this lifestyle leads to family problems, a decline in work productivity, and ultimately physical and mental burnout. Brian Robinson, author of Chain to the Desk in a Hybrid World, he knows a thing or two about work addiction. He spent years hiding and repressing a destructive addiction to his work, which took a toll on his relationships. But today he's helping others break the chain, including Alanis Morissette, who has, quote, greatly benefited from his guidance, experience, knowledge, and wisdom on the topic of healing from what I consider to be the quietest and most insidious and often praised addiction in today's times. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to make it better. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. Welcome to Reconsidering. My name is Brian Robinson, and the book is Chained to the Desk in a Hybrid World, A Guide to Work-Life Balance. Hey, Brian, so we have a series of 11 questions, sort of, you know, A or B type questions that we're going to start with. You ready to go? Sure. Okay. Library or coffee shop? Library. Museum or concert? Concert. Home or office? Home. Calendar or to-do list? To-do list. React or respond? Respond. Instinct or data? Instinct. Point it out or let it go? Let it go. The beginning or the end? The beginning. Passionate or practical? Passionate. Warrior or sage? Mm, A little bit of both. Okay. And lastly, poetry or prose? Prose. Brian, your book opens with a personal story about your work addiction, and that illustrates just how profound your addiction was. Could you tell us what was that like to be work addicted? What were the choices that you were making, and how did that impact your life? You know, every time I talk about this and I hear what I'm saying, it's like, who was that person? It just sounds so sick. Because I was not in control of my life, but the paradox is when you're addicted to something, it's all about control, but you're just out of control. I did everything with my work that my father did with his bottle. I overused it day, night, vacations, holidays. I binged. I slept in my clothes sometimes, working all night, waking up like an alcoholic on a drunk. I had what I call brownouts which are a little different from alcoholic blackouts, but brownouts are when you have conversations and you don't remember having had those conversations or you're driving somewhere and you end up and you don't remember where you were going because you're working the whole time. You're kind of work drunk. I committed work infidelity that I talk about in the book, which is I lied and said I hadn't been working when I really had because my family kept coming down on me because I was never there. I've had many clients tell me that too. I have some really interesting stories about that. When I finally started dealing with it, I noticed I even had withdrawal. If I had to just sit and not work, like vacation, I couldn't do it. I got antsy, not depressed, but um, 
you know, drumming my fingers and agitated. I'll give you one example. Many, many years ago, I was a professor at the University of North Carolina, and it was a weekend coming up as I have a weekend coming up right now, nothing on the books, totally open. And I was terrified because of the uncertainty. So what I did is I found out there was a call for grants. And so I got that printout, put it under my arm. And I remember walking to my car on campus thinking, oh, my God, this feels so good. It was like an alcoholic with a bottle under his arm because I knew I had something to fill the time. So for a lot of us, it assuages anxiety. People don't often understand this, though. They think it's really cool to be workaholic, especially the hustle culture. But it's not cool because I almost died and certainly destroyed almost all my relationships, even my marriage, which is really good now. And by the way, this weekend coming up, it's totally open. I can't wait. So it's a total different way of being in the world. And I attribute that to a lot of different things, meditation, therapy, Workaholics Anonymous that I started in Charlotte, North Carolina. But most of all, I want to talk about at some point a type of therapy that I was trained in and that I now do. And I have a lot of big, well-known celebrities who come to me that you would know if I shared their names. They talk about it all the time, but I can't. But they're always running around telling people how I saved their lives, which I really did not do. I just had the expertise of having been through something that many therapists don't even understand and they don't even believe in. I've had therapists tell me that's just pop psychology, which is bullshit. Believe me, because I've lived it and I've suffered through it. It's real. Now, there are different degrees of workaholism. You know, I mean, I would say mine was pretty severe, but there are other people who, you know, they're different points on the continuum. But workaholism is not created by the workplace. That's a misnomer. It's created by what we bring into the workplace, the inability to cut it off, the inability to stop thinking about it, because it's urgent. And if we stop thinking about it, or if we don't do it, all that old shit comes up from the past. If we can't deal with it, we got to have something to take us away from it. That was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me is listening to how you talk about family dynamics and how you were raised and how that can affect any sort of addiction, especially workaholism. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. I could tell you some people that I know personally, Gloria Steinem, Alanis Morissette is a friend of mine, and I could name some other folks, but I talk about their story in the book. And the first time I talked to Gloria Steinem, she called me at the university and she said, Brian, I feel like I know you. Well, I knew who she was, but I'd never talked to her. And what she meant was she didn't really know me, but she had read a book I wrote and she knew internally what that's like. And when you meet someone like Alanis or Gloria, Ariana Huffington is another one. These are all women, but it's interesting because we tend to think it's always men. We know each other because most of us were what we call parentified. Parentification is when you're young and for one reason or another, you have to take on adult responsibilities. You're not emotionally constructed to do that. So something happens to your nervous system that's known as global high intensity activation, G-H-I-A, GIA. And what that means is 
when you're catapulted into the adult world without the emotional and psychological construction, oh man, it's uh, like when I was nine years old, my dad would take my little sister and me to the movies. He would say, I'll be back at nine. You'd be right here in front of the theater. This happened hundreds of times. And every time we did it, we'd show up. He never came back. He was off drinking and passing out. And so I had to get us home the best way I could. Sometimes taxi, sometimes we would walk home three miles in the dark. Back then, dogs were not on leashes where we lived. And sometimes they would chase us and we'd be running from the dogs. It's not funny because I'm feeling a little bit of emotion as I say it. So that chuckles just to cover that up. So you have those kinds of experiences and everybody's experiences are different. But when you have that, you have to latch on to something to take you away from it. And what I latched on to, and you're not even consciously doing it. This is all below the consciousness. I latched on to schoolwork, homework, church work, taking care of my little sister. And so in therapy, we call these parts or aspects of us ourselves that develop. And as those parts develop, they configure internally. They're arranged in a certain way that you're protected. And what that means is as you grow and become an adult, they are fixated. They're freeze-framed. They're framed, frozen. So once you're grown, what kind of work can you do except college work, university work, and then career work? And it just felt like a normal thing for me. I had no clue. To me, I was just being who I was in the world. But what was happening was work took precedence over everything. My marriage was on the rocks. My career, even though I was getting accolades and fat paychecks and awards, inside I was crumbling. I was miserable. I was unhappy because I didn't even know who I was because I was so covered up by these what we call parts. So what really helped me, I would say, the most of all, it's a type of therapy called internal family systems therapy that I have now developed my own version of that I use with clients. It was originated by Richard Swartz, who has become a friend of mine because I worked with him in the early stages of IFS. And what that is, is you learn to pay attention to your protectors. In other words, workaholism was a protector for me. Now, despite all the crap that it caused in my life, you wouldn't think that it could be a protector, but think about it. It took me away. It made me feel like I was in control. It helped me survive the adult world that I didn't know how to survive in. So it's counterintuitive, but it helped me get through the rough times. But when I sat down with Dick in front of all these therapists, friends asked me to come. They needed some fresh meat who didn't know somebody that didn't know anything about it. And so Dick and I started talking and all of a sudden he said, why did you move to Asheville? And I said, well, I, I want to play more. And as we talked, this image of Hannibal Lecter from the Silence of the Lambs came up as my work addiction that had consumed me. I didn't create this. It was automatic. It was organic. And he was wiggling his tongue at me. And of course, I'm going through this process and it was really terrifying because I hated him. 
had to put a mask on him like you saw in the movie and put him behind bars. And then I talked to him. One of the things we have learned is talking to our protectors, even if they're scary, is one of the best therapeutic techniques we have today. We know that from clinical and empirical research, that speaking to our parts in a precise way, one of which I've developed, helps you separate from them, helps you understand them, and helps you collaborate with them so that you, I call it the C mode, C spot, you are leading, they're not leading. So if I'm pissed off at somebody, well, I'll give you an example. One day I was coming back from Atlanta, which is about three hours from Asheville. I was on the freeway, and as I was getting off the ramp, I just casually looked over, and a woman in a little red car had been in front of me, and she gives me the finger and frowns. And my first thought was, what the fuck is going on? And then I saw my anger, and he's coming toward me, and he's saying, tell the to go to hell. And I, I said, hold on, sit back down. I'm in charge here. I know you're trying to help me. Now notice I'm not angry with my anger. I'm not debating him. I'm not stonewalling him. I'm just talking to him. And so what happens is as he sits down, you don't feel the anger. You feel your C-spot, which is calm, clear, confident. So my focus immediately was on my internal activity, not on her, because I'll never know what that was about. And then comes the euphoria, because when you're able to stay in your central command center, which is another way I talk about the C-spot, you're living your best life. You're courageous, you're clear, you're creative, all those C-words, you're content. But when anger takes over and eclipses you, and when anxiety takes over and eclipses you, or depression or whatever it is, You don't know how to get out of that. But what I've developed that can help you get out of it is what I call the triple A. All of this is in the book, by the way. The triple A is when you're aware you're triggered. It can be anger. It can be sadness. It can be control. It can be avoiding something. Awareness is the first step. And most of us don't have that because we're so used to swimming in the water. We don't see the water we're swimming in. So once you're aware then you acknowledge whatever it is. So I acknowledge my anger. I see you're here. I know you're trying to help me. And then the third A is allow. I'm allowing you to be here. I'm not ignoring you or steamrolling over you or fighting you. And so as I do that, the acknowledgement will look something like, oh, so you're here. I didn't do this with the anger because I have a bypass that I use. But normally what I would do is, okay, I know you're pissed off. So just pull up a chair. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's talk. Now, you notice I'm talking to it just like a person. As you're talking, you're dialoguing with it. You start to notice a separation from it. It's almost like you have a bird's eye view of what's going on between you and this part. And so you shift into your wide angle lens is what I call it. Because when we're triggered or threatened, the brain goes into a zoom lens or a myopic picture. It has to, because if it's a real crisis, we have to have a myopic view to survive. But this is not survival. The parts think it is, but somebody giving me the finger, they're not going to kill me, but your parts get threatened by that stuff. So the wide angle lens is when you talk to the part and you realize it's separate from you and you feel that it's palpable. And then you're able to be in that place, which is 
the C spot. Yeah, I found this technique of consciously changing your inner voice and addressing yourself in the third person. Or, you know, I used to, when I try to go to sleep, sometimes I have all these different competing demands happening in my brain. I've got a piece of me that's like cataloging to-do lists and another one that's like, you know, replaying events from the day where sometimes I'm triggering anger. And a few years ago, I just consciously decided to give them all names. When I'm trying to go to sleep, I will be like, hey, Julie, just Julie and Brad and Steve, everybody just calm down. We're trying to go to sleep here. And that is another thing that I encourage people to do, because if they have a name, you concretize them. You can see your skeletal system. You can see your circulatory system. You can't see these, but if you give them a name, it's easier to communicate with them. Ariana Huffington calls hers the obnoxious roommate. Dan Harris, who used to be on ABC, calls his Robert, and Aaron Brockovich calls hers negative Nancy. So it's great to have a name for them because it makes it even more effective to be able to not fight them. You're collaborating with them. Collaboration is really the word that I would use because you're working together. You need your anger. You need your fear because if you don't have it, somebody could come up and you can see what's going on in the world. Anything could happen. So we need to flee if it's dangerous and sometimes fight if it's dangerous. Also, like the part in the book where you talked about negativity bias, which is, a, if I recall, it's kind of where you're talking about this inner voice piece. It's similar to the story you were telling about the road rage encounter you had, where you know you kind of overestimate the threat. And the piece I really love too is not just the overestimate the threat, but that you underestimate your ability to cope down the road. I found that was really interesting. Do you see that with these celebrities you're working with, or any overachiever that we see? Do they fear the future? Do they kind of have this anxiety about just being able to keep it up, or is it? That the workaholism like kind of foreshorten your planning ability and your vision of where you might be in two to five or 10 years? Everybody has this. Even all three of you do. Aaron, you do. And Meredith, you do. And I do. Everybody on the planet does. They just don't talk about it or they're not even aware of it sometimes. It's just hard to say, but everybody has it. I call it a fortune teller. Again, it's just another label so that you can concretize it. The fortune teller is the part of us that says, you don't know what you're doing. You're going to go give a talk to 2,000 people and you're going to fuck up. And so we believe it. We hear it. We think it's us. We think it's true when, of course, it isn't true. Parts make up stories because they are overestimating the threat of what that's going to be. And they're underestimating your ability to carry it out. But when you talk to them and separate from them, you feel a real true self, the confidence. You'll notice in the book, I've talked with people like Aaron Brockovich and India R.E., who's an incredible Grammy Award-winning singer, Alanis Morissette. All of them have, especially India R.E., tells her story of not being able to sing some of the songs she had written because she grew up in a religious environment and wasn't her, her parts were protecting her, and they were afraid that if she did, people would judge her or shun her or reject her. But when she stuck her neck out a little bit and started singing them, she got standing ovations. She got Grammy Awards, and she said to me, I remember thinking, you mean everybody feels this way inside? You mean that I can actually sing these songs? And the songs are beautiful. It's just that the part was keeping her stuck. It was blocking her ability to be creative. And you'll notice creative is one of those C words. This happens to all of us. We're all on a stage. We're not all entertainers, but whatever work you do, you're on a stage. And I also talk about Sean Mendez, who a lot of listeners will know. 
uh, he didn't tell me this, but I saw a documentary about him. There's a voiceover, it's his voice, and he's walking on stage, and there are thousands of girls throwing their bras and panties at him. And he walks up to the microphone and he's saying, I'm the man. You're the man. You got to deliver. And he said, every time my first note is flat. So that's a part trying to help him, but getting in his way because it's saying, you got to do, man, you got to be perfect. But he's not able to do his best, but he's really doing the therapy that I do because he has this other voice that comes in and says, I'm just a guy that likes music. And as soon as I say that, I knock it out of the park because his creativity comes through. Another one of the C words. So it's kind of like imposter syndrome almost can contribute to workaholism. Yes, it can. If you have a part that says, and I know Michelle Obama, Tom Hanks, Angelou has a great quote. She says she's pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And she believed that for a long time. I noticed that highly functioning people are the ones who have imposter syndrome, that they're fake, that it's an accident, or that they're not as great as everybody thinks they are. But those are parts. Those are parts, again, how in the world can that be protecting you? That's the counterintuitiveness, but it is because if a part believes you're not that great and everybody else thinks you are, then it's going to want to hold you back so you don't get humiliated or judged. You see, that's just the way our internal system works. You know, in the U.S., we do, I suppose it's global too, we, we do so much to celebrate and hold up celebrities and, you know, whether they're entertainers or athletes or whatever. And I think as I've gotten older and I've read more about them in your book and elsewhere, certainly if you go read about the lives of, you know, authors from the 19th century, 18th century or something, kind of just seems like such a difficult and horrible existence, you know, and such a distorted existence. When you think about like the life of somebody like Michael Jackson or, you know, or the Beatles, like Paul McCartney's lived experience is so bizarre. When I look at people that are balanced as celebrities, I'm just stunned that they were able to pull it off. I can't believe that the norm isn't that they freak out, you know, and, and have a breakdown like Britney Spears or somebody like that did. Like, I just can't imagine going through the day like that. Aaron was telling a story earlier. He recently saw Herbie Hancock in concert and ran into him after the show. And I don't know, by all accounts, Herbie Hancock seems like a pretty normal guy. He is, but also he's a Buddhist and he meditates all the time. And one thing that I noticed about the way that he approaches his work and his life, he's sort of like without ego. I mean, certainly there's ego with someone who is a giant like that, but he's just generous. He's generous in the performance. He's generous with his time with other people. He's really open and you can see him, you know, he spent a lot of time sitting and meditating to arrive there. We all have ego. I mean, we have to have ego. The ego is like your rib cage. If you didn't have your rib cage or your cranium, my gosh, what would happen? It's the psychological protection. That's what the ego is. But we don't have to live from that place 24-7. We need it. You can't get rid of your ego. You have to have it to live. But you can live more from that other place that I was talking about. Tito Jackson, I did interview him. It's in a new book I'm writing. He told me he and his brothers practiced in Indiana before they were even known. The neighbors would yell at them to shut up. They ain't going nowhere. You ain't going nowhere, their neighbors would say. And then all the way through 
even when you know they morphed from the Jackson to the Jackson Five, and they went through a lot of different versions of themselves. Even the some of the producers behind the scenes were saying, "You're washed up. You're not going to go anywhere." Oh my gosh, look what they did! So fortunately, they didn't allow. I think because of their father, they didn't allow those parts to take over. They were able to really, as everybody knows, be some of the best composers and musicians we've ever seen. So they didn't bite the imposter syndrome hook. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah, and you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. So Brian, this is a great technique for dealing with some of these things, like naming some of these voices so you can speak to them and sort of manage them. Are there other practical techniques for people to manage their connection to their professional lives and stay in that C spot to live a more balanced life? Well, the one thing I always say is don't wait until the heat of the moment till you're triggered. This is something like you mentioned meditation. If you really practice it, you'll notice it's kind of, it is like meditation because when you meditate, you're in the present moment. You're not thinking, you're noticing, which is different. So I encourage people to practice this before so they have this tool when they are triggered because we all will be. Before the end of this week, every one of us who is listening and talking right now will be triggered by something. So if I already have this in my hip pocket, you know, and I practice with the little things, maybe the checkout person smashes my vegetables and now I'm aware, oh, I feel a little something in my stomach, butterflies or something, or pressure. So I just focus on it and say, oh, I see you're here. It's okay for you to be here, but just hang, I'm here too. You're not alone. Something like that. As you start to practice it, you develop the muscle memory because this is not easy. If you just read the AAA 
and then you think, oh, I'm going to try that next time, you're probably not going to be able to do it if it's something that is really triggering you. But if you practice it with the little things, you'll notice it becomes more habitual and you'll be able to live more from that sea place. So that's one of the things. It's important that people know everybody does not have images like I described. People are different. So sometimes it can just be a felt sense. It can be a body sensation. Butterflies in your stomach, your heart pounding. So you go to where your heart is pounding or you go to the butterflies and just say, oh, okay, so something's up. It's okay. You know, you can be here. Tell me what's going on. Here's the interesting thing is these parts will talk back to you. Or I may not use human language. Sometimes mine do. But sometimes it's a communication that you know what's being said back and forth, but it's not a literal words like we're talking now. But you're collaborating and you're talking back and forth. And they love it. Parts love it when you connect with them in a positive way, as long as it's positive. But if you fight or if you get angry with them because they're in your way, they get bigger. That's just physics. It's the way it is. I always tell people, because the biggest hurdle is getting the notion, getting it in your bones, they're all trying to help you. So how can my voice in my head that's telling me I'm a piece of shit, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm a loser, I'm never going to amount to anything, how can that be helping me? Well, if you're a parent and you have a child who runs out in the middle of traffic and you grab them, pull them back, and swat them on the behind and say, are you fucking crazy? You don't want them to get killed. You don't want them to die. That's what the critic and the judge are. They're trying to help us, but they get in the way because then we feel bad about ourselves, you see, and that's another block. But when you can communicate with it and say, I get it. I know you think that, and it's okay. It's okay for you to think that about me, and I know you're trying to help me. Right now, I'm telling you, it doesn't feel like it, but I know that's your job. And then as you do that, you feel calm and you have clarity because you see what's going on. You have that bird's eye view that I was talking about before. So just know that parts or protectors can be a body sensation. It can be a voice in your head. It can be an image. It can be a thought. So it shows up in lots of different ways with lots of different people. I just happen to be a visual learner and I usually have characters. They take on some character for some reason. Yeah, it's a really interesting notion of like, you've got this inner dialogue happening with all these different pieces. I'm reading a book called Why Buddhism is True right now by Richard Wright. And he talks about the modular mind and that you've got all these different modules that are competing with one another. You know, that kind of made me think of Marcus Aurelius in Meditations where he talks about the command center you know, and, and as you're describing it, and I'm thinking about my own experiences, it, it is interesting because you get to this point where in your head, you're like, okay, there are these X number of different voices going on. And right now, it's just everybody yelling. And whoever yells the loudest is getting all the press right now. This other part of you, which I think all of us still feel, there's this command center piece that sort of sits outside all that, which is kind of nuts. And like the command center says, hey, hey, everybody just slow down. Let's take turns here. You know, and and you kind of call on them one by one. I like what you're saying about even your inner critic has a role to play. You just want to be sure that they're called on and that they're contributing to the conversation at a meaningful moment, a meaningful time. One of the most intriguing things about it 
is you start to see that your parts have relationships with each other. That's really what you're talking about. Like, for example, my Hannibal Lecter was polarized with the part of me that wanted to play more and relax. And he said, ain't no way that's going to happen. We're not going to do that. And so the part of me that wanted to play hated him. And then he hated the part that wanted to play. So if you sit back, you'll notice parts have alignments with each other and they have polarizations with each other. It's like I think of a boardroom where I'm the CEO, right? I'm the head of this organization called Brian Robinson. And around my boardroom table, I have these parts, these protectors, my critic, my judge, my control, my anger, my sadness, my avoidance. And when I start to watch them, some of them are fighting each other, but I'm able to sit back and see them not as me, but as this is what's going on inside of me. It's almost like seeing your circulatory system or your respiratory system working. And so I don't identify with them as much. Yeah, that's interesting. I kind of want to segue this conversation into the hybrid work world right now, because I'm just thinking about how, you know, we do have different parts and we can address them. But I think one of the biggest things that I have found struggling, and I know that a ton of other people struggle with this too, is we used to be able to compartmentalize our work and our home, right? We used to be able to wake up in the morning, drive or take mass transportation to our work, go to work, go to work, shut down, commute home, have a life outside of work. And what's happened now is that that's all blurred, completely blurred. And like I said before, I don't think I'm the only one that feels like this, but I feel like I have absolutely no separation anymore. I feel like I always need to be on. I feel like I always need to be checking my phone, even if I'm just leaving the room to go grab a snack, right? Because there's that mentality of you need to be at work during nine to five or whatever. And I'm sure this has contributed to workaholism like dramatically. What have you seen and what kind of tips have you given people to make sure that they don't shift into that workaholic mindset and try to find balance? Well, when we live and work under the same roof, you don't have boundaries, right? It's fluid. So the first thing you have to do is develop some kind of boundary. So for example, right now I'm in my home and I'm fortunate enough to have a big enough home that my office is off downstairs all by itself and all the traffic is off for me. So it's quiet. What I recommend, and it's what I do is imagine when I'm not working here, this is five miles across town. That automatically gives you a boundary. What's happened, you're right about, as we started having remote work, more people became modern day workaholics, 47%, I believe was the number, because they didn't have the boundaries and they were working and burning the midnight oil. See, that's the other thing. Well, I'm home, so I might as well knock this out and then tomorrow I can sleep late or whatever. So even though the research shows people are more effective working at home, if they have boundaries, people were burning out more at the same time because they didn't have boundaries. So that's the first thing. If I'm working, the other side of that is there's chocolate cake in the fridge or the laundry needs doing, or my dog Hudson needs a walk. So again, those lines have to be drawn as well. When do you do these things? You don't have to be rigid, but there has to be some understanding that these are two separate things that I'm doing here. And they both 
need to be honored. And I've got to figure out a way I can do that. Now, everybody doesn't have a room like some of us where we work. And if you don't have that, you can create a little space off from the traffic in your house, even if it's just a little corner somewhere. So you're not in front of the TV with everybody else. We're working on the kitchen table. Again, it's being real clear and conscious about where you're going to be working. And at the end of the day, think about a time to turn off your cell phone and to close that door or to get away from the workspace so you can be with people and have off time and reset your brain, for God's sake. That's the most important thing of all. We know from the neuroscience, I call them micro breaks or micro chillers. I have a whole chapter on micro chillers are forms of meditation. They're five minutes or less because we don't have to sit 20 or 30 minutes a day, cross-legged, lotus style, and burn incense and meditate. You can do it as you're walking to the Xerox machine. All it takes is just being aware of the present moment where you're listening to the sounds or as you're walking the sound that your shoes are making or you're aware of your feet in your shoes against the floor. And you can do that in one minute and it resets your brain and brings you back and actually to your C-spot really is the way I talk about it in the book. There are a lot of those exercises that you can do during the day. And so you're integrating and resetting your brain during the workflow. And that's what we want. It's another way of bringing a boundary or integrating a boundary with the two. What's the difference between being a workaholic and working hard? And how do we diagnose it when we've gone off the path? That's a great question. It's one of the most common questions I get when I talk about workaholism or work addiction. People will often say, what's wrong with hard work? As if I'm talking about hard work, which I'm not. Hard work put us on the moon. It developed a vaccine for COVID. And I could go on and on and talk about all the advantages of hard work. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder where someone cannot stop. The best way I know how to put this simply is a workaholic is someone who's on the ski slopes dreaming about being back at work. A healthy worker is working, thinking about being on the ski slopes. So workaholics don't really want free time. It's too scary because the work, remember, is medicating them from something, either long-term or something immediate. And you can't define workaholism by the number of hours alone either. Just because you're working 12 hours a day doesn't necessarily mean you're a workaholic. It's more about the inability to stop thinking about it and to be present in present moment awareness in other areas of your life. Yeah, I find that part in the book where you describe the four different types of workaholism. That was like an interesting thing as well. And you had it on a two-dimensional axis. I don't know if you can walk us through that real quick, but I found that to be very clarifying about the difference between this hard worker versus workaholic thing. It also says there are many faces of workaholism, just like there are many faces of alcoholism. It shows up differently. So I would call myself the relentless workaholic, dyed-in-the-wool workaholic, meaning if I had a project, this is not me now, but I was so driven if it were the deadline were six months away, my part would act or think and behave as if it's due tomorrow. It was urgent. That's what I call the relentless. The savoring workaholic is someone who 
kind of like an alcoholic, you know, savoring a shot of bourbon and just wanting to just have it forever. They're crossing their T's and dotting their I's and going over it. There's, of course, there's perfectionism involved and they don't want to let it go. And people are hounding them if they're on a team and why haven't we gotten this yet? Well, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll give you. So they're savoring the experience. The ADD workaholic is someone who waits until the very last minute. It's also known as uh, work anorexia. You wait till the last minute and then binge and throw an all-nighter to finish it up. And your adrenaline takes over and you're getting these incredible highs and you're manic, almost like you're bipolar, to get the job done. But you're procrastinating up until that point. If we had a choice between managing our time or managing our energy, which is better for keeping us moving in a balanced direction? Well, I would say managing your energy. We have to be aware of time, but the energy that we're putting into things really is more important. You know, some people think if you're not going to be a workaholic, so you work from nine to five and that's the answer. Well, that's not realistic. I mean, that's time focused, but it's really about the energy. And if you think about, for example, someone who's work anorexia, they're thinking about and spending all this time and all this energy, but they're not doing anything. It's depleting. And the other thing I would say about that is when our parts, our protectors are leading us all the time, it's exhausting. When you can live more from your C mode, we can't live there 24-7. That's not realistic. But you have so much more energy to create and to do whatever you need to do, whether it's parenting or your job or just being with friends. You have so much more energy. So it's really an energetic kind of thing. If you meditate or if you use the AAA or if you just spend time watching the grass grow or Where I am, I have a view of the mountains, and I think of that old John Muir quote, I'm in the mountains, and the mountains are in me. It's energy. It really pays off. Uh, We know from the empirical research, in fact, if I take a break, I take time. I'm not losing time. Workaholics, though, tend to think if I exercise and work out, and if I meditate, and if I spend time with my family, I will never have time to finish my job. But the truth is, you have more energy to complete whatever you need to complete. If you reset your brain, you're more clear, you're calmer, you're more focused. The energy is what we're used to drive us. And I want to distinguish between driven and drawn. A lot of people say, well, you still do a lot. You're writing books, you write for Forbes, you're doing all these podcasts, you have a private practice, (laughs) all of which is true. But the difference now is while I used to be driven by the demands of the work that I was doing at the university and I had to do research, publish or perish, although I wanted to, now it's like it's inside out. It's not outside in. And that little voice that used to whip me with a chain is not there anymore. So I don't feel the driven parts or protectors I feel the C spot, which is more, it comes from want to, I get to, not I have to, or I must. Call that masturbation, by the way. 
<laughs> Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> we're going to wrap up, but we do have one last question for you. So we like to ask this question at the end of the conversation that's sort of a reverse mentoring question because we have this idea that we know things when we're younger. We know things when we're 25 that we tend to forget as we age. And so if you could, I'd like you to kind of think for a moment and kind of bring forth into your memory, you know, the 25-year-old version of Brian, you know, and then I want you to imagine sitting down with that young man and having a conversation. And instead of, you know, your version today, giving him advice, which is the way most people think about it, I'm wondering what would that 25-year-old version of you say to who you are today? He's proud and he's, uh, his mind is a little bit blown because he didn't have, uh, let's see, he had a degree in psychology, a BA degree, but had no ambition to ever be doing the things I'm doing. So the doors just opened along the way and he would never have predicted that I would be writing for Forbes or be a full professor at a major university or write 40 books or be with his spouse for as long as I've been married and living in the mountains in a beautiful place and being happy, basically. He was so unhappy and lost, so lost. I remember I did some workshop somewhere. It became experiential. I didn't know it was going to be, but I remember saying to someone, and I was in my 20s, that I was afraid to go out beyond what I knew that 20-year-old was because I didn't have enough confidence to go beyond those limitations. The way I would see that now is those parts were keeping me, they weren't trying to keep me stuck, but they were keeping me limited to feel safe. But feeling safe is not being happy. So as those boundaries widened, now I realize there's a whole universe inside of us. Just We talk about going into outer space. There's a whole universe we can go into inside of ourselves. And I used to never would have thought that. In fact, when I was in my 20s, I was headed in the direction of science and empirical research and getting a PhD and being a scientist, which I was. And I believed if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Well, I'm at the complete opposite of that now from that young man who didn't believe in religion and because I was brought up in some fundamentalist crap. So now I still don't believe some of the crap I was told, but I do believe there's more to us and the world than we can see or ever understand. It's there. And everybody has a different idea of what it is. But the 20-year-old, nah, he was just riddled with fear. And the man in front of you is riddled with love. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Brian, where can people find more information about you and your books? Well, my website is brianrobinsonbooks.com. And it's Brian with a Y. It's brianrobinsonbooks.com. And everything is there that you see some of the articles I've written for Psychology Today and Forbes and information about the book. And there's a test that you can take called the WART, the Work Addiction Risk Test. And it will be electronically scored for you. To, you can see if you are a workaholic or not. And if you are, how severe it is. It's a fun test to take if you want to do that. And there are other uh, fun things that you can do on the website, all free, of course. Fantastic. Brian Robinson, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great. I enjoyed meeting all of you. 
Well, that was an interesting conversation. He definitely gave me a lot to think about. Hey, Bob, what did you think? You know, we're recording this post game a couple of days after we did the interview, so I've had a little bit of time to digest it. And I've been telling people about the interview. And, you know, when you try to take that whole thing and you summarize it down to somebody to tell them briefly about it, the line that keeps coming up, which really stuck with me, was when we were asking, what's the difference between a workaholic and someone who works hard? And I loved how he had that line, somebody who works hard is at work thinking about being on the ski slope, but somebody who's a workaholic is on the ski slope thinking about being at work. And I thought that was such a great way to kind of synthesize and pull together and help kind of distinguish between those two modes of operation. And it played into his theme that workaholism is an addiction. And he paralleled it to alcoholism, which seems like a reasonable comparison, you know, as a type of addiction. And then I love the piece where he was, you know, he's tracking it back as these things invariably do, tracking it back to challenges from your childhood and how you related to your parents. And I love that piece he had about workaholism isn't created by the workplace. It's a personal issue. Because I know there's so much emphasis on trying to reform the workplace, which is a big societal change. And we didn't get into it with him maybe the way we could have about sort of the perils of capitalism, particularly in the United States and how we don't take vacations, like the cultural impact that fuels workaholism. But, you know, in that context of workaholism, you know, specifically, it was like, no, no, this is like a personal, emotional, psychological issue that people really do need to go get help and counseling. You know, his own journey sounds very much like any sort of addict journey where he hits some sort of rock bottom and his family goes, gets at risk and, you know, he just gets totally obsessed and then recovers and gets on the other side of it. So, yeah, I found all that very different from how I would have thought about workaholism beforehand and certainly very different perspective on it all than before I started reading the book. Yeah, I think the thing that was really interesting for me is that coming from a challenging childhood, I'll just say, (laughs) I think, and a lot of people don't know that, but I think for me, the thing that hit really hard was that work is something that I could control, whereas there was a lot of things that I couldn't control growing up, right? And he talks about in the book, like, when you're forced to grow up fast, you become responsible for things that otherwise you would not be, and you like your childhood's kind of taken away from you. And for me, work was the one thing I could control. It didn't matter if I was working in college. Same thing with school, right? Like, I finished college in like a little over three years, You know, I took classes and I worked a job because I knew that I could control that and I knew I could succeed in that. And so I think that kind of trickled over in my life about why I work the way that I do, because I know it's something that I kind of have authority over. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Aaron, what were your thoughts? I think I've had passages of my life where I have tipped over to the workaholism bucket and have recovered from that healthily. I'm a big fan of work. I like it. I like, you know, the mental stimulation, the challenge. I think there are certain scenarios of work that are better for me than others that's taken me decades to figure out. The part that was really salient to me in the conversation was the idea of protectors. He said the critic and the judge, which so many of us have working overtime, they're protectors trying to protect you from being hurt but sometimes they get in our way. And that's a different way of framing. Oftentimes we're just like, shut up, I don't want to hear this criticism, or we're overwhelmed by that self-critic. But to think of it as a protector, like what do you do for Aaron? How do you help Aaron in these circumstances? 
that's a different framing that's very helpful. And the way that he talked about anger and these other big emotions that he would let them kind of pass through him by not really confronting them, but just recognizing them and say, you know, I see you. For most of us, that's just not a way that we think about emotions. Emotions are just this thing that is consuming and we're lost in it and we don't really understand how to navigate that. I thought that was a very healthy approach to dealing with big emotion. Yeah, going back to that thing about the protector, I thought that whole part of the conversation was really fascinating about like personifying these voices in your head and recognizing them and sort of almost creating this internal council of people. You know, it resonated with some of my experience to try to control all my inner voices as well. And I, and I was thinking about, oh, yeah, for most of us, I think we go through life and there's all these inner voices. And it's just whichever one's yelling the loudest at the time gets your attention. But is there some way to actually kind of pull them all together and assemble them, you know, and kind of gavel the meeting to order and then sort of calmly call on them one by one? And then you can kind of deal with the input in a different way. And it's, you know, it all happens inside your head. So it's very opaque to anybody around you. But at least for me, that sort of approach has been really, really life-changing. You know, it just helps you manage all that noise going on in your head. And it ultimately kind of quiets those voices down. It's almost like they're just these tantrumy little kids that just need to be called on and heard for a moment. And then they sort of settle back down. I wrote that down too. He called it addressing your parts which I thought was really interesting. And I know something from being in therapy myself is that when I start thinking about something or getting anxious about something is you're supposed to identify it and then be like, huh, that's interesting. And then kind of store it away. Right. And so I think that's something that it takes practice to do, but when you do it, you do feel more sane, I guess. And so not all these voices are screaming at you all at once or telling you what to do. It's like, huh, okay. You told me this. Let's put that here and let's think about that later. Huh, this? Let's do this now. So I really liked what he was saying. The other thing that I thought was really cool was him talking about, you know, you don't need these big, massive breaks, right, from things. Like you can take micro breaks or what he called micro chillers, which were like less than five minutes. And I think people think, oh, I need this huge long vacation or, oh, I need, you know, to go in a room for the night and decompress or whatever. But I think maybe, and I'm wondering what you guys think, maybe it's healthier to have these micro breaks because you're consistently decompressing versus just like waiting, 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 and then trying to decompress all at once. Yeah. You know, a previous guest of ours, Judy Wirt, has given similar advice. She certainly has mentioned it to me that she'll take like a longer morning, maybe start a little bit later. And for her, what puts energy back in her battery is her garden. So she'll take a longer morning in the garden to put energy in the battery. And that was actually one of the questions that I asked Brian was, which do you recommend managing your energy or managing your time? So I think a lot of times people were navigating life through a to-do list, which is time-based and a calendar. So it's always about time, but it's not about our energy. This is how much time that I have. But that time, your energy does not map to the amount of time that you have. And so these micro chillers to be able to put some energy back in the battery, just kind of stay in balance. For me, you know, something I've learned from journaling the past few years is that when I put energy back in the battery, newsflash, I'm, I'm happier. You know, I just feel better. I feel more balanced. I feel like I can think more clearly. I can have better conversations. I'm a better partner to my wife. So that energy management is so essential to me. 
Yeah, so much of this stuff parallels my experiences when I used to run marathons and was training. If you just run all the time, you're 100% guaranteed to get injured. Like, it's just going to happen. And so you have to figure out how to exert yourself for a while, pressure limits, and then pull back and rest. And then you run harder, and then you pull back and rest. And whether that's interval training or just the way that you're scheduling out your weekly runs or whatever, you, you have to have those breaks put in there because you're just going to break your body if you don't. And it just seems like so much of this stuff just perfectly parallels that. You can't work and function at 100% all the time. So you have to just sort of give in to the natural rhythms of your body and your emotional state, which is perfectly fine, you know, as we find over and over again in some of our conversations. You just have to be willing to embrace the realities of being a human being and what it means to inhabit a human body and a human mind and go with that. Nature has carved us out and created us to function in a certain way. And once you accept that, the whole system works so much better. You know, you are happier and you're healthier and you end up sort of paradoxically being wildly more productive if you give yourself more free space. I think the one thing that I would question, like if I had one more question for him, is how do you approach this when you've got two or three jobs and you've got, you know, a family to take care of and you are literally forced to work many, many, many hours throughout the week to keep your family going, right? And I think that there's a lot of people out there who do live paycheck to paycheck. And it's like, it almost seems like a luxury to kind of have that. And so I don't know if if either of you have an answer, but how would somebody doing this who has two jobs and has a family be able to kind of take a similar approach when literally they have to work all of the time? So I think that is the societal problem. You know, we talk about managing ourselves. If you have space in your life and you have the privilege to be able to manage your own time and energy, you know, I think he was giving us some comments and thoughts and advice about how to do that. But there are, to your point, many, many, many people in this country and around the world who don't have that luxury. And that does seem to me like a massive social failing. And I think that's the thing when you opened this up and you're talking about working hard or workaholism, I think that's like there's a very clear definition of what that is. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, you've got two jobs, you're a workaholic. Nope. I just have to literally work hard to put food on the table, you know? And I think that there needs to be a better line drawn in the sand of what is optional versus what you have to do to survive. Support networks are so key. I think regardless of your station in life, a support network, especially if you are, you know, operating with minimal amounts of excess energy and time, someone who could maybe watch your kids for an hour or even just somebody to talk to, you know, like is so essential to finding some balance and getting some relief. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.